This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Healthcare workers in the U.S. and the U.K. lining up for Pfizer's coronavirus vaccine. Mostly smooth, but there have been some problems. Allergic reactions. Medical worker in Alaska had to go to the hospital for a bad reaction to the vaccine. Are these just isolated incidents or signs of a serious problem? Many hospitals on the brink of filling up what happens when they do. Major airline working with the CDC to help with contact tracing. The holidays, already a mental health struggle for lots of people this year it is even worse and the rich they're getting richer imagine that small businesses getting wiped out let's start with the vaccines and allergic reactions dr mary beth fasano is president of the american academy of allergy asthma and immunology doctor is there a potential problem with the vaccine you know um we truly do not know yet. If I may say so, the devil is always in the details, if I can use that expression. And the full nature of the adverse reactions for the two women in the UK, as well as this recent report coming today out of Alaska, still remain unknown. Um, Our allergy community, as well as the CDC and the ACIP, that's the Advisory Committee on Vaccine Practices, is watching this very, very closely and hoping to get more information. Now, I can tell you that um, uh, allergic reactions, meaning anaphylaxis to vaccines in general, occur, but I want to provide some reassurance. They are truly quite rare. And just for a vaccine anaphylactic event, the reported rate is really just about one, maybe 1.3 per 1 million vaccine doses. So um, although I think um, a caution is in order here, um, I, I, I do think that it is important for folks to remember that we still need to await more details risk benefit assessment is critical. So for individuals who have any concerns regarding receiving this Pfizer vaccine, perhaps really discussing with their local providers the risk, meaning what community spread for COVID is in your community. And I understand in LA, you guys are experiencing a significant uptick that needs to be weighed about the risk and even a potential unknown risk for an anaphylactic um, event to this vaccine. I know I'm going on and on here, but the other thing I did want to comment on, and I think that this occurred with the Alaska individual, at least based on limited knowledge I have at this point, is they followed the ACIP recommendation that there's a 15 minute wait period after you receive that vaccine. And for this particular individual, what what symptoms ensued, they were able to then receive um, prompt treatment. And then uh, truly, I think probably just for some, we need to be cautious here, um, an overnight stay at the hospital for observation. Okay, but, but but here's the thing. Oddly enough, what you just said, and I know you were meaning to be assuring, but in some ways, it's it's less reassuring, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Because you had, you had pointed out that a, a severe allergic reaction is a very rare event, and that's what I've always read, too, to right. vaccines. But yet, you've got that up against the fact 
that on the very first day in Great Britain, where they didn't vaccinate more than about a thousand people at that point, they had not one but two severe allergic events. And today in Africa, which I think Africa in, in in Alaska, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, where you had I think was the very first yeah, day their there, first day. their yeah, first yeah. day. I mean, for a rare event, it seems like it's not so rare. So let me go back. And again, I want to use the expression, the devil is in the details. There um, can be a variety of different things that can masquerade as or mimic anaphylaxis. And so really, um, we do not yet know the full data to know for sure um, from um, the UK scientific investigators or from Pfizer, which is um, obviously investigating this or with the MRHA, which is sort of the, the British equivalent of our health agency, the full details regarding the exact nature of this, and I'm going to say this in quotes, severe allergic reaction or anaphylaxis, unquote, um, and it is possible that there was another explanation or another condition that um, resulted in these symptoms, which may have mimicked anaphylaxis. So I, I don't know if that, that, that sort of helps. I mean, it certainly is concerning um, what's out there on social media and what's out there at least thus far from um, what's posted in the media and I, is that these were severe allergic reactions but from a medical or scientific standpoint from the individuals involved, both with the UK uh, recipients, as well as with the Alaska individual, those details have not yet been made public. Um, and at least to my knowledge, even made um, full details aware to a medical or scientific um, uh, leaders here within the US. We shall await the details. Dr. Mary Beth Fasano, president of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. The virus continues to surge across much of the country, but especially here in the West with California, Nevada, and Arizona still peaking. Hospitals filling up quickly, with many considering plans to turn patients away. Also, problem of a nationwide nurse shortage. How bad could all this get? Dr. Janice Orlowski, Chief Health Officer for the Association of American Medical Colleges. Doctor, have we just not done enough to make sure there are enough beds for situations like this? You make a good point, but what I would say is we've never seen every part of the country affected like we are today. And so in the past, we were able to, if there was a hurricane or if there was a disaster, there'd be an immediate response. We'd be able to, uh, uh, you know, the uh, FEMA would respond. There would be emergency tents and, and emergency care that would be provided and patients would be transferred out of that area. Now there's no place to be transferred because everywhere in the United States is affected by this. And, and you're right, this is something new. We've never seen it before. And is this also the difference between now and the summer surges and, and other areas when, when it was kind of going around the country? You could send nurses, you could send staff too, not just transferring of the patients, but people got on planes and they went to New York or people got on planes and then they went to the South and then they came back to California while we were kind of exactly. just doing our, our slow burn here. But now it's, now it's everywhere and you can't send anybody because you need them where you are. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly what happened. I mean, I remember talking to, um, you know, many of the big California hospitals early in the spring where they stepped forward and they sent teams to New York and they sent teams to Detroit. And and as you said, you know, it, it was sort of different areas were going on. But, you know, we had talked in the uh, spring that we expected uh, to see a slowdown in the summer. I'm not sure that we ever saw that. Um, and that things would be worse uh, this uh, fall and winter. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Uh, And and I would also say that one of the things that's adding to the shortage is that for healthcare workers, this has just been 10 months, 11 months of just unremitting work and unremitting care. And so part of the shortage that we're seeing is I, and as I talk to CEOs across the country, um, what they're telling me is their biggest concern in healthcare is personnel, um, having enough nurses, having enough doctors. Well, and, and I was going to say, and, and, and the reason, by the way, I asked my, my question before the way I did it, I was kind of laying the foundation for this, which is I remember after 9-11, there was much discussion in this country about uh, in the event of further terrorist attacks, bio-warfare, that sort of bioterrorism, that sort of thing, that we needed to really beef up hospital capacity. We needed to beef up right. doctors and nurses in the event of a national, a national not a local, catastrophe. Right. And now along comes this pandemic, and I have to wonder, all that discussion since 9-11, where did that all go? You, you know, you make a very good point. We have talked over and over again about the need, not just um, because of an emergency, but the growing elderly population, people are living longer, that there is a, a physician a workforce shortage, and we needed not only more doctors, but more nurses. Um, you're right. And and what I would also tell you is that we, we remembered 9-11 and what was needed after 9-11 for a short period of time. There was money that was put in for emergency preparedness. There was... Um, uh, you know, there were a number of things that were done, but that has not continued. Uh, if you take a look at our preparedness, there was money uh, put into uh, the healthcare system after Ebola, but all of those funds stopped at least a year before um, uh, the current pandemic. And so we have a, a, a short memory um, that needs to be fixed on being able to prepare long term for the healthcare crisis that we're going to face. And that's infrastructure support, it's um, more healthcare workers, and more doctors. Dr. Janice Orlowski, Chief Health Officer for the Association of American Medical Colleges. United Airlines is going to be working with the CDC to collect contact tracing information for its passengers. That way, people who get on the plane might have been exposed to the virus, they can quarantine to try to prevent an outbreak. Joe Schwederman, professor of public services at DePaul University, he talks to WBBM's Cisco Cotto. You know, they're stepping up the game here, and it's it's, uh, mimicking a bit what Delta did, but they're going further. Initially, international arrivals are going to have an optional contract tracing app and website feature where you can input where you're going to be and uh, who you're going to be with and things. So they can kind of keep tabs on you if there's uh, quarantine requirements, things like that. And they're going to gradually roll that out to domestic flights and outbound international flights. So it's, it's a big news story. Yeah. And so uh, how does this end up benefiting people? If they get COVID, you, you know, the, the airline knows who to contact or if there's a case. I mean, how, how does this work out in the real world? 
Well, that's right. And I think you already have an element like this in places like New York, where you arrive at the airport, and there'll be a National Guard person asking where you're going to be, and then they start sending you emails saying, are you quarantining? Uh, Have you left the country uh, city yet? You know, press yes if you have. So this allows the CDC uh, and the airlines to sort of uh, uh, make people indicate how and and, uh, where they're going to quarantine. And it gives people a sense of security, too. But it is voluntary, and that's going to be, of course, a a lot of opt-outs. And in the end, when they do this, I mean, have we had a lot of cases on airlines of COVID being spread? Or is this just another way for the airlines to say, hey, we're safe. You can fly here again. You know, I think uh, uh, there has been very few high-profile cases on airlines. They've been really lucky about that. I think this is probably less about... uh, transmitting COVID on the airplane itself and people coming from high-risk countries and simply ignoring the quarantine. So, you know, international travel is in a real tough spot now because people are afraid of the quarantines. There's a a sense that uh, there could be penalties if you violate the quarantine. And this sort of makes it official. When you land in the country, you tell the airline and the CDC where you're going to be, and that brings an element of order to it, but it does, uh, it adds a new wrinkle to international trips. Yeah, seems like it, but uh, we'll see how it goes. Thank you, Joe Schwederman, Professor of Public Services. Coming up after this short break, how can we cope mentally with a pandemic that seems like it'll never end? More people struggling with mental health issues now because of the pandemic. The holidays can make the struggle even more difficult. It seems like this will never end. That has a lot of people down, especially if they can't get together with their friends, their family. Dr. Rachel Daltrey is director of the Counseling Center at Westchester University. KYW's Matt Leon asks her about how bad the health crisis is, the mental health crisis, and what people can do to try and help themselves. This time of year, it can be really challenging for a number of reasons. Uh, One, it gets darker earlier. Uh, We're humans. We like sunlight, and um, that can really impact people's moods in a lot of ways. Same thing with it being colder as well. We're not outside doing as much. We're inside. Um, That can impact people's moods. The other part about the holidays, typically we're around family and dealing with family conflict or expectations around holidays. Like this is what it's supposed to look like or this is what it's supposed to mean or I have to get all of these presents or, you know, I have to behave in a certain way or I have to present myself in a certain way. And all of those things can be really, really stressful and can impact how we're viewing ourselves, how we're interacting with other people, which again can really impact our mood in a lot of ways, particularly for those who don't have that consistent support of family and friends, um, or it's really conflictual. Um, The holiday time and this time of year really highlights a lot of those things. So now let's take an already existing problem and let's throw a global pandemic that is spiraling out of control right now. Uh, How concerned are you about those two things coming together? Yeah, it's really concerning. I think, especially for a lot of people, my main area of focus is college students. And so typically college students have an escape and then they come home and we prepare them for being home over winter break. Um, However, they haven't had that break. And for a lot of people, especially with the pandemic, aren't able to leave their homes where there may be a lot of conflict or they may be, you know, stuck with people that it's, it's not a safe space for them to be in. And also feeling like, well, I can't do the typical things that I normally do at this time of year. I can't go out. It's not safe or I have to wear a mask or there are limiting numbers. Or I can't go you know, out to restaurants. All of that, again, can really add that additional stress to it. And also the isolation piece. That's a thing that you know, we've been hearing consistently throughout this pandemic is people coping and dealing with the isolation piece and also the anxiety of getting sick. I kind of wish more people had a little bit more of that anxiety of their own well-being, but also 
you know, taking care of other people and spreading it, you know, with all these talks with the vaccine, that's exciting. And also that's not going to completely solve the problem because you may be, if you have the vaccine, you may not get sick. That doesn't mean we don't know yet if that means you can't spread it and still give it to other people who may be at risk for that. So coupling all of that, you know, there's a lot going on right now for a lot lot of people. And it can be, you know, literally and figuratively some dark days here, but you mentioned the vaccine. And I think that's been one of the first lights of hope we've seen that we're going to finally kind of get over this hill. But I mean, we're losing, and it kind of amazes me, the numbness we've seemed to have developed to this. Or we're losing two, 3,000 people a day. That's going to continue here for a long time until we hit brighter days ahead. How do you, emotionally, how do, should you comport yourself dealing with a really dark moment, but knowing that things are going to get better on the horizon. Yeah. I talk with a lot of people of the and of things can be really hard, really scary, really difficult. And there are these other places that we can go. There is hope there, there are things can get better um, or there's things that we can enjoy right now. So a lot of my focus with people um, who I'm working with is how do we find joy? How do we find joy today? Um, Just because things are really hard and really scary and can be really depressing or anxiety provoking, or there's been a lot of grief and loss, that doesn't mean we can't also have joy. Um, and that joy kind of keeps us afloat. You know, that's kind of like the little life fest that, that we try to hold on to until um, our circumstances improve and get better, where life feels a little bit easier. And you talked about, you know, we get the vaccine and it's not going to be the final piece. It's going to be a big piece of it. But are you worried at all people that you know, are going to go from down in the the dumps to, oh, great, everything's fine, like uh, that big emotional swing. And I don't think that can be completely healthy either, right? Yeah, I think, you know, there's always that like initial burst. So you think that adrenaline burst, like, okay, things are are better, we're good. And then, you know, I think it's going to hit a lot of people what we've been dealing with for the past nine months, you know, almost a year, you know, probably be a year until... Um, people, the vaccine, the vaccine get out there more, um, that people are going to have a lot of stuff to deal with, um, when things get better and maybe they have a little bit more space to deal with it. So I think there may be that initial swing and there's that little pop of like, everybody's great. Everything's wonderful. And I think for some people, it's going to be really hard. Um, I think especially for our medical staff, um, hospital nurses, doctors, people who are really on the front line dealing with this. Um, I'm really concerned for their well-being, physical and mental well-being through all of this. How would you, and you talked about find the importance of finding joy, you know, and as a life draft to keep you going. But, you know, people that are in the soup here on many different levels and dealing with a lot, what would be some recommendations for you for keeping your sanity while also kind of keeping your eye on brighter days ahead? Yeah, I think it's always a balance. So we want to have like the end point, kind of like if you're running a marathon, you kind of be like, okay, how many more miles do I have to go? And I have this finish line so I can push myself to like get there. Um, And you also have to maintain during all of those miles. So, you know, you have to have like the little energy pockets, you know, feed yourself water, uh, maybe slow down your pace a little bit. Um, So really being intentional, I think on a day-to-day basis is really important is, okay, what am I doing today? How am I feeling today? Those 
those check-ins that we have to do with ourselves. How am I feeling physically? How am I feeling mentally? And what do I need? What does it feel like I need right now? Um, that can really keep us afloat and kind of really check in with ourselves. So we don't kind of push things to the back too much and then it kind of explodes or it, it feels really overwhelming. So I think those intentions can be really important in slowing ourselves down. It also helps us find those little joys or those moments of gratitude. The other piece is of it is how do you get support? So, you know, a lot of people are struggling, feeling isolated. How can I be intentional about connecting with other people? whether it's loved ones in my own life, whether it's professional help with counseling or like an online forum, whatever that may be, is how do I maintain those connecting points? How do I find community and a support system? Because again, you know, when we have a whole bunch of people together supporting one another, you're going to stay afloat a lot easier than when you're trying to go through it on your own. We've done plenty of segments on the economy and how it's been a struggle for so many people, but some people are making even more money now. 45 of the 50 biggest companies in the U.S. have been quite profitable during the pandemic. They've done it in part by laying off hundreds of thousands of workers, not to mention all the small businesses that have been wiped out. Matt Stoller is director of research at American Economic Liberties Project. So, Matt, what's going on here? How do the companies uh, get away with this? Yeah, so what happens when the pandemic hit is we have a very concentrated economy where big companies control core infrastructure where we do business whether it's Amazon or Walmart or Boeing or whoever. And the government, um, when the pandemic cr started crashing the economy, the Senate and Congress and Donald Trump signed a bill called the CARES Act to try to protect those large corporations and you know, did a little bit for working people and a little bit for small businesses, but most of the capital um, and effort went into helping the big guys. And so the concentrated economy that we had before the pandemic, that that uh, concentration is is amplified. And that's what we're seeing now where where big business is even more powerful, so much so that they can they can make more money and lay people off at the same time. Even if I wasn't a direct beneficiary, though, it's just if I'm bigger, I have more power to survive than the little guy who's barely hanging on because you talk to small business owners and they say, you know, I was cutting it real close when things were good. Now I just have no chance. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, before the pandemic, you know, you depending on who you are, if you if you, you know, you pay three, four percent to the credit card companies, you know, you might have to pay a bunch to Amazon if you sell through them. Um, you got to you have your, your budget through Google. If you're a farm, you know, you have your people that, you know, the institutions you sell. It just depends on the industry you're in. But basically, everybody is surrounded by concentrated market power. They also, it's about twice as hard to borrow money if you're small than if you're big. And so it was already a problem before the pandemic. And this is all a result of policy choices that we've made over the past 40 years. So, um, so then the pandemic hits and a lot of aid goes out to big business and not that much to everyone else. And so, you know, when, you're, when your customers start suffering and when you can't maybe open your business because of restrictions, you know, there's, is really very little that a small business can do, and those problems even get worse. But, you know, I, I think that a lot of people would probably be okay hearing that some of these large companies uh, are doing so well when smaller you know, businesses are not. But the problem, I think, comes when they hear that coupled with, as we said at the very opening to the segment, coupled with, those same companies laying people off and they they think, well, wait a minute, that doesn't it just doesn't seem 
Right. It doesn't even seem American. Especially if I'm buying all this stuff from you guys, because I know I will, because I'm stuck at yeah. home, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend money for some exactly. of these big guys, so you're going to make money off of me, but don't turn around and, and let people go. Yeah. Yeah, so a lot of the aid that, I mean, the when Congress was debating uh, what to do, they, they debated conditioning some of the aid to let, pledges to not lay people off. And the, the Federal Reserve said, oh, don't worry about it. Um, we'll, we'll lend money to big businesses and we'll encourage them to maximize employment. And then later on, when big businesses started laying people off, congressmen asked the Fed, hey, why didn't you do anything about this? And they said, well, you didn't require us to. So the, the policy choices that they made, I mean, you know, Donald Trump was involved in this. So were Democrats in the Senate. And so, were, you know, so were um, uh, Republicans and Democrats, both kind of they, they were afraid and they legislated out of fear when the pandemic was coming. And so they didn't place requirements saying big businesses can't lay people off. And, I've you know, we've seen this over and over. We saw this in the bailouts in 2008. And, you know, we see it kind of every time. And at a certain point. I think the public needs to start voting for people who are going to say, you know, we're not going to give everything to large businesses in Wall Street. We're going to actually we want to we want a, an economy that works for everybody. For the companies that have been asked, what's the response? And then do you just watch whatever they say with a very uh, crucial looking eye? Because they say, oh, it's restructuring, right? We didn't laying people off. We're just moving people around. Or this was baked in before the pandemic happened. Or look at all the jobs we are hiring. But if those jobs you are hiring are, are part-time jobs, they don't have the benefits, it's not the same job that you're letting go, then it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, last year, the Business Roundtable, which is the largest um, companies in the economy, Association of Executives, said, we're no longer going to just look out for shareholders and we're going we're gonna to be, um, we're going to look out for stakeholders. What they really meant is we're going to do some charity work. Uh, and we're going to continue to operate the way that we have. And it's because big businesses, when you get big enough, you're no longer a private sector institution. You're a private government. Like Amazon is a private government of the retail, online retail economy and, you know, Google and so on and so forth. And I think we have to start looking them at them as private governments and we have to start applying political power to break their power. Because if we don't, then there won't be any small businesses in America anymore. And we will actually end up stop living in a, in a democracy. So that's the situation that we're finding ourselves in. And hopefully this will be a wake up call. And is there an expectation with an incoming Biden administration that these companies, these these sort of private governments will be dealt with in a significantly different way? It's hard to tell because it, I, I don't think anybody knows what Biden intends to do. But, you know, what you do see from, you know, you're seeing an antitrust suit against Google and one against Facebook and from the state attorney generals, as well as the Federal Trade Commission and the DOJ, which is a move to say, actually, you're not allowed to rip everyone else off, including a lot of small businesses. And you're seeing movement at a local level. So I think that what you're what's happening um, what's happening in our culture is actually bigger than just a new administration. I think we're starting to see a rebellion of Americans against this kind of big is good framework that really has you know, been dominant in, on both sides of the aisle. And I think there's, there's anger now on both sides at their own party leadership for not protecting the little guy in America. Matt Stoller, Director of Research of the American Economic Liberties Project. Concerns are being raised about the airline industry when the pandemic ends. Some industry experts say maintenance could be a big issue as well as bugs. I mean, actual bugs. Like, as in, like insects? Like insects. <laughs> All commercial airlines are equipped with little tubes that stick out of the fuselage that keep track of 
air pressure and are equipped with sensors that direct all kinds of data critical to safe operation, the called pitot tubes. Investigators with the European Union's Aviation Safety Agency discovered that certain kinds of insects love to build nests in the tubes of planes grounded for a long period of time. So when those planes are up and flying again, that could mean all kinds of false data being sent to the pilot. It's like that movie Snakes on a Plane, but this time they're just smaller. Yeah, little little, bugs. Little little tiny bugs. All right. You can find us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. (laughs) 